You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Garrett Jones, who teaches economics at George Mason University. He's also the author of a bunch of books. Most recent one is called The Culture Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move To a Lot Like the Ones They Left. And then before that, you've got this one, 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites a Little More and the Masses a Little Less. And then the first one was called Hive Mind. Welcome, Garrett. Yeah, thanks for having me, Greg. So, I mean, I think there are some interesting connections across all of these books. And I thought maybe we would start with the book 10% Less Democracy. and you know, the way you start off this book, you provide a framework, which I think it's almost impossible for anybody to disagree with, particularly if you're an economist, which is that there is a Goldilocks solution to this question of like... It's about the balance, yeah. Exactly. Like how much democracy is best? And, you know, the answer to every question in economics is, well, there's some trade-offs. And so you introduce the, uh, quote, Laffer curve of democracy, which I get, you know, you could call it the Jones curve, or you could call it the Hamilton curve, or the Aristotle curve, <laughs> pretty much anybody who's studied these issues would say that there's a trade-off, but there aren't a lot of modern political scientists that have really kind of dug in to exactly what these trade-offs are and where we ought to be on that curve. And I think also the public discussion is a little bit muddled. And so whether you're an academic or whether you're in the general public, we kind of confuse a lot of the different terms, right? We confuse democracy with some of the things that correlate with democracy, some of the things which flow from democracy, and basically anything that's good and desirable, we call democracy. <laughs> and anything exactly, yes. It is, it is bad. We, we say, oh, that's like anti-democracy. Why is it that we don't really have a good sense of what we mean when we use this term? And why you know, do people kind of equivocate right, when they toss this term around? It's hard to know why we locked on to the word democracy as the sort of catch-all for good governance, right? But it is strange and really important to note that a lot of what we call, when people romanticize and talk about the true benefits of democracy, one of the things they usually include is some version of an independent judiciary that enforces everyone's equal civil rights, right? And if there's one thing that's undemocratic, it's a bunch of unelected judges sitting there and making decisions for everyone, in, at least in the U.S., so much of what we're grateful for in terms of improved governance comes from the judges who work over here because I live near Capitol Hill and not from Congress, right? A lot of important civil rights decisions, whether involving same-sex marriage or voting rights, have come from the courts over here, right? And the equal enforcement of the laws without voters getting a direct say, that's undemocratic right there. When people use the phrase, we're a nation of laws, not of men, that's a way of saying, in the short run, democracy doesn't decide how this trial turns out. The voters don't get to rule on this. We have some rules we set a long time ago. We have some nerdy judges who oversee the system, and they're making the decisions. So a lot of what we love about our so-called democratic system are its most undemocratic parts. The part of what I do is notice that that applies to other areas, including central banking, where as a monetary economist, I know like central banks that are being run by the nerdy people I went to grad school with, those work a lot better than the ones that are being run by the voters. So I'm here to basically, in 10% Less Democracy in particular, to de-romanticize the word democracy and remind people that there's this trade-off between not democracy and monarchy, not democracy and autocracy, but really democracy and oligarchy. The idea of just a few insider elites who have a disproportionate influence over our life. I mean, that's called the fire department, and I really like the fire department. Yeah, I remember I was at a dinner a couple of years ago. I guess it was right after Trump got elected. And I was with, you know, a bunch of fintech folks. And they were all, pretty much all immigrants. And they were bemoaning Trump's anti-immigration policy. And they said, it's horrible how anti-democratic uh, this is, how it's a threat to democracy. And I pointed out that actually support for immigration was actually higher now than it ever had been, right? This is around 2016. I mean, starting with the... Native Americans, they weren't too keen on it. <laughs> and the English weren't too keen on the Germans coming in. And the Germans weren't too keen on the Italians coming in. The Italians weren't too keen on the Chinese coming in. And so if there was political 
support for immigration, it's because the system was not democratic, right? So yeah, elite influence has had a lot of really beneficial influences on American policy, right? And immigration policy is one of them. And one of the great horrors of the past, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. I mean, that was a democratic push, right? The elites knew that Japanese Americans were literally no threat at all. There was no security threat to speak of, right? That was a democratic push. FDR was worried about citizens out in California complaining. And so he responded to the democratic will, the evil democratic will of those voters. And so if we're trying to draw some kind of connection between the degree of democracy on kind of the x-axis and the you know desirable outcomes, right, the things we're looking for on, on the y-axis, how do we define democracy, right? How do we measure it? Can we look at a, a country at a particular time and place and, you know, give it a score? I mean, there are a lot of entities that do this, but they all use kind of different methods. What would be the best method? Yeah, the modern methods of measuring democracy often do make this mistake of blurring together like actual voter participation in government with neutral rules that can't be manipulated in the short run. So the first part to me is truly democratic. The second part is pretty much judicial independence, which is not democratic. So at different points in 10%, I use these mainstream democratic measures that are put out by places like Freedom House or whatever. And they're okay, partly because they break it down into different categories. So if you really need to look under the hood, you can look at just frequent and fair elections, which is what I would use as a benchmark for representative democracy. But in practice, and this is a case where we really should just go back to raw theory, which is, does mass voter participation shape the policies of the state, right? That's really what I'm interested in. So if that's my method of thinking of democracy, I mean, I don't want to use the utopian version of like voting for everything on a smartphone, right? Like smartphone websites. That's too far. That would be like Athens though, right? I mean, in Athens, you, you voted on everything. Yeah, exactly. Ancient Athens would be a sort of ideal or a sort of platonic ideal, really, of, of uh, pure democracy, right? People showing up to the meetings every day to debate individual decisions, making sure that terms for elected officials are very, very short, making sure people can be recalled from their positions quickly. I mean, in ancient Greece, like one-year terms were the norm. So two-year terms for the House of Representatives are definitely a throwback to that ancient Greek ideal of short terms. And if there's one thing that I think a lot of us believe about modern American democracy, is that those short terms in the House of Representatives are pretty much bad news, right? I was an old Senate staffer a long time ago, and we all saw on Capitol Hill how senators became political cowards right before an election, right? They act like statesmen the first four years, a little bit more like statesmen at least. I don't want to dramatize it. They act like statesmen the first four years, and they act like pandering politicians the last two years. So longer terms, and that's a really nice test case, right? You've got the House versus the Senate. You've got senators who just got reelected versus senators who are coming up for reelection. Unfortunately, people have done studies looking at this and checking to see, and it looks like senators are just kind of worse just before an election. One measure that economists, that we economists appreciate, um, one study found that in the two years when a senator is just coming up for reelection, he's 10 percentage points more likely to vote for a free trade deal. And that adds up to a lot when you've got 100 senators, right? Hillary Clinton, she voted for every single free trade deal in her first four years as a senator, and she voted against every free trade deal in her last two years as a senator. That is democracy right there. The closer you are to voters, the closer a politician is to voters, the further the politician is from wisdom. Well, I, I mean, I see striking parallels between this discussion around political democracy and, you know, what we call shareholder democracy. In the, the literature is very divided in corporate law, right, where you've got some folks saying that you've got shareholder primacy, they need to be able to kind of get rid of the managers at a moment's notice. The managers need to be super hyper attentive to their quarterly earnings and so forth versus the school of, you know, managerial entrenchment. And so a lot of times people say, well, you know, managerial entrenchment is a bad thing because then they can sort of feather their own nests and turn public goods into private goods that they then give to themselves, you know, constituent service and so forth. So why would we think that being protected from the wrath of the voters would make them better at governance. Why would the sort of objective function of the legislator or the bureaucrat, let's say, or the judge align with the common good rather than, than something more parochial? Well, first of all, I'm not claiming that it aligns perfectly with the public good. It's just that they're better than the alternative. I mean, that's real economic thinking, right? The alternative to unelected, out-of-touch oligarchs is not a bunch of philosopher kings who distill the wisdom of the masses. 
It's the actual normies we see out here, right? The soccer hooligans who fill our society. And, you know, if there's one lesson that I've learned from being at George Mason, reading the excellent book by my colleague, Brian Kaplan, Myth of the Rational Voter, is that voters just don't know that much. And a lot of what they do know is wrong. They follow their fads. They follow memes. They believe things that are intuitive rather than true. And that's true, especially in economic policy, right? You have to be pretty smart to see the invisible hand. And most voters just uh, aren't that smart. So thinking about the secondary, tertiary, quaternary consequences of any decision, that means thinking down long logical chains. Like the invisible hand is really tough, tough concept to teach. The benefits of trade, the benefits of less regulated labor markets. And so the masses aren't going to get that. The question is, will the insiders get it more? And partly they may have a chance of getting it just because they're better educated. And in the case of U.S. governance, once they have long terms, like say the Federal Reserve, they really don't have to worry about what the voters are thinking. And in practice, just looking around the world, it seems as though the group that they feel the most allegiance to in central banking circles is basically mainstream monetary economics literature. That's their peer group. So, you know, who is the peer group they're worried about? What is the status game they think of themselves as playing? In the world of central banking, they're interested in like impressing their professors from grad school. And fortunately, at least in our era, the professors in grad school had some pretty good ideas. So just even doing a halfway decent imitation of that works okay. I don't deny that they're like thinking, well, I'd like a job at Citibank or Goldman Sachs someday after that. But I can look around the world and I can tell that countries independent central banks have lower, more stable inflation. They're probably less likely to get into financial crises. And those are both pretty good payoffs and are a good reason to just let the nerds be in charge and stay as far as possible from the voters. Yeah, I mean, central banking is one of the key examples in your book. But is it just that we would expect the people who get into these positions to be smarter and better educated? Or is it that we think that being in these positions, there will be an incentive to become more informed, right? Because they're not distracted by, you know, the day-to-day stuff that the typical voter is distracted by, right? So, you know, when a voter is asked to vote on some referendum, like here in California, we get like 50 of these a year. And you can spend maybe 30 seconds perusing you know, the, the pamphlet before you have to vote. I mean, is it just because these guys don't have to do their jobs as dentists so they can actually spend some time reading this? Or is it that they are held accountable by others? I mean, I think of the, the central bankers, they're kind of being held accountable or they're subject to the influence of the people that they encounter on a more regular basis, which is presumably other bankers, right? And other folks in in the financial services sector. Well, that's certainly possible, but obviously whoever you're talking to on the phone or you're seeing in meetings, those people might have some kind of soft influence on you. But when you know you've got a guaranteed job for 14 years, I mean, that gives a certain kind of time horizon that lets you focus on the longer run. So the long terms of these politicians mean they can take a chance on a policy today that they think might only work four, six, eight years later. I mean, this is something that came up in the Federalist Papers, that one reason we should be excited about a six-year Senate is because politicians will take on projects in the first year that might not pay off for four or five years. It's just, you know, that kind of time horizon is going to be much less prominent in the House of Representatives with two-year terms. So a long time horizon means that people will take on projects more likely that have a longer-term payoff. And when we look again, I'm not just going on theory here, right? I'm looking at what happens in the real world. And yeah, the senators are different from the members of the House. And yeah, central bankers who are independent from politics seem to be making better decisions than those that are under the thumb of the prime minister. Yeah, so it's not just structural independence, let's say, but it's also the terms, right? So, you know, longer terms versus shorter terms. And you talk about bicameralism, but isn't there sort of another form of bicameralism at work, right? Where a typical legislator is concerned with votes at the ballot box, but also contributions. And you didn't talk about lobbying much in the book, but is lobbying sort of a, because, you know, people who are investing real money, informed lobbyists, they're presumably playing the long game as well. Does that sort of lengthen the time horizons by responding to that kind of influence as opposed to the the short-termism of a typical voter at the ballot box? Well, yeah, I mean, I got to meet quite a few lobbyists when I was a Senate staffer. I worked on tax issues and there was a big international tax reform bill going on. And, you know, one of the things that works well on the Hill is having somebody with a building a long-term relationship over time. That's the reason why Senate, former Senate staffers, one of the reasons they work well as lobbyists is because they already have relationships going, right? And so those folks can 
sometimes take a bet on something that might be a five or 10 year investment. Now, overall, the evidence that on the big picture issues, lobbying shapes voter outcomes, it's really weak. Political scientists and public choicers like myself have studied this in some great detail. But the best anecdote is just thinking about how much Michael Bloomberg spent in the presidential election back in 2016, right? I mean, he spent approximately $20 quadrillion on ads, and he managed to get the electoral votes of American Samoa. So, I mean, I'm really happy that the people of American Samoa get paid attention to during election years. I mean, they, they deserve more democratic participation they get. But like, wow, if you really thought money would buy elections, then we'd be talking about President Bloomberg right now. Yeah. And, and you also, you have a whole chapter in praise of the political machine, right? You're referencing Jonathan Rauch. But the, you know, machine has a couple different connotations, right? So one version of, of the machine that you refer to is the kind of log rolling and vote trading, which emerge sort of the political marketplace, which emerges and it, it tends to emerge when these legislators can play the long game, right? And they're not concerned about how their votes look in the moment. I mean, Joe Biden actually got a lot of flack in the recent election because he had voted in favor, I think, of some busing legislation back in the 60s. And his argument was, well, you know, I didn't support busing, but I had to vote for that in order to get all this other stuff. And people were not <laughs> sympathetic at all to that. Political bundles are bundles. I mean, this is a terrible part of democracy, right? Yeah. Log rolling is how the sausage gets made, right? I vote for something that I'm not crazy about or even opposed because I know I'm going to get something else that's really great. Right. But if you're under constant scrutiny, then one of the arguments is that we don't see much of that anymore. And the earmarks, which we got rid of, served a very important function. Well, you know, Jonathan Rauch's Political Realism, short free book, recommend it. He basically emphasizes that like a lot of backroom deals work pretty well. And every time Congress basically tries to make take some step to make it harder to do backroom deals, to try to create more open governance, to try to give all 435 members of the House a say in things, things turn out bad and then they end up reinventing some form of oligarchy again. So the sociologist Robert Michels, German, wrote a great book where he came up with this great line, which is his most famous line, the iron law of oligarchy. He studied the most democratic organizations he could hope to find in his life, these new social democratic parties in Europe. And he said, like, no matter what happened, no matter how much you try to get the masses involved, you end up winding up with some form of oligarchy where a few people end up having disproportionate power. The new version of this on Capitol Hill among the House GOP is known as the five families. And that's their iron law of oligarchy going on right there. It represents the five different major factions of the House GOP caucus. So every decision that has to get worked out has to get worked out among the five families to some degree before the speaker can bring it to the floor. So oligarchy, some form of small group decision-making, I don't have to call it oligarchy if you don't want that, but some form of small group decision-making ends up being central for every large group that wants to come to decisions. That seems to be just an iron law of human behavior. Yeah, I remember reading that Robert Michel's in, in college. I didn't even know it was still in print at this point. There's a great translated PDF. Some folks a long time ago translated it into English, and it's great. So he's very readable. Yeah, I don't think anybody needs to read the whole thing, but it's worth 20 minutes of your time if you're interested in how political parties really work. But there's another view of the machine, which actually goes contrary, I think, to your argument, right? So, you know, the reason why the civil service was created back in the day was to get out of this kind of cycle of spoils, right? So Tammany Hall and the machine politicians, they were delivering the goods, right? They were providing constituent service. Now, if this is a public good, that's great. Everybody benefits. But if it's just like, I'm going to give out jobs to my cronies so that they can eat at the trough, then we want to get rid of this. And you get rid of this by having these civil servants that have job protection and, and long-term horizons and so forth, right? So is Tammany Hall something that supports your argument or is that against your argument? To me, the Tammany Hall story is about having the cronyism and the floating political coalitions in the executive branch, right? Versus the legislative branch. I mean, I truly think the legislative branch is really where we should be going to think about democracy per se. That is the thing that is most like democracy. We've got a lot of different voices, a lot of different voices being in the room, coming to some decision. Now, the question is, when they come to a decision, should that decision be run by their team on a day-to-day -day basis? And even from the point of view of those selfish politicians, like say you know that half the time Democrats are going to be in power and half the time Republicans are, are going to be in power. 
if that legislature has a long enough time horizon, they'd be happy to have a pretty independent, pretty neutral executive branch to carry out their wishes. So that because they're going to be in charge about half the time anyway. So the switching costs, the inefficiency, the transaction costs of switching the executive branch back and forth over time between parties might actually be too high a cost for them to pay. And they might be willing to say, we'll take the lumps of not being able to kick out the executive branch every two years or every four years when power switches in exchange for avoiding, you know, keeping a more efficient executive branch from year to year. You know, I wish there were actually great academic research on this, on whether the switch to a more independent executive branch, like civil service type rules, whether that actually had any efficiency effects. I've been looking, I'd, I'd be open to if any of the listeners have any suggestions of what I should read, I'd be interested in that. Do I see any obvious benefits, obvious increases in the amount of railroads we've been able to put up or electricity we've been able to build since we had a more independent executive branch? I don't know. I'm open to learning on that one. Well, at least in the legislature, I mean, you worked for Orrin Hatch and I mean, he, he had a pretty secure job, I think. He wasn't really contested. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, a lot of debates about she's in her 80s and, and they're thinking it's time to pack things up. But if these representatives had more job security, I think your argument would be we would get a lot better results, right? So if they gerrymander everything to the point where nobody really has to worry about losing their seat, then regardless of the fact that they're deeply Republican or deeply Democrat, they should presumably figure out ways to do business together, right? That's a good point, right? If they have more job security, then they can think more about the long run, right? But it's also worth noting that even in real time, sometimes you don't have to change the actual person with the job in order to change the policy. We've all watched politicians drift on their views in order to be in line with the, with the voters, right? The, the old saying in politics is that if, if you're a leader who doesn't have anybody following him is just a guy taking a walk. So politicians do end up adjusting. I've watched Nancy Pelosi do it over the course of her career. We've all seen Joe Biden do this over the course of his career. It's common for politicians, even if they're supposedly entrenched in office, to still pay attention to the voters because they love these jobs and they love having safe margins. And that encourages them to pay attention to the changing will of the voters. So do you think with, I mean, the Twitterification of, I don't know if that's a word, Twitterification of politics, have we then become more democratic in the last decade or so with social media? Because the election cycle seems to be happening you know, every minute of every day. That's my hunch. So I, don't, I can't point to anything solid on this, but it just seems obvious. We went from three channels, nightly news broadcast to the 24-hour news cycle of the CNN era. And now with the rise of social media, we've got like the 20-minute news cycle, right? Unfortunately, a lot of members of the House and Senate over here, can, they can ignore a lot of this, right? It's amazing how many of them just put their heads down and keep their, get their work done. And they pop up occasionally to send emails off to their constituents. I just got one yesterday for, for my Virginia senator saying, oh, by the way, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has all these great things for Virginians. And let me tell you exactly what they are, right? And, you know, I don't hear about this guy in the news. It's amazing. Like, even though we talk about the 24-hour news cycle element of this, it's amazing how, many of, how much of that is an opt-in that those of us who are media savvy and Twitter addicted dive in on on our own. And like a lot of people out there just go out there doing their jobs and then getting reelected at really high rates. Well, how much also is peer effect? I mean, you are a monetary economist and you talked about central bankers and you said that the best kind of central bankers are the ones that are, you know, academic <laughs> macroeconomists who care about what their colleagues think of them and so forth. I've noticed this with people who run nonprofits and who run universities. A lot of people say that they're overly concerned with what the customer wants, right? The students and so forth. But I think a lot of them are deeply concerned about what their colleagues think of them. For instance, in the corporate world, a lot of the ESG stuff is driven less by what they think the shareholders are going to want and what the consumers are going to want. But, you know, when they show up at that benefit, right, what are their fellow executives going to think of them? I mean, how important is it that we have, I guess, a robust type of civil society within these different occupations to give people the kind of support that they need to resist the pressure of popularity and popular demands. I didn't know where you were going to go with that question, whether you're going to go, you know, who should get more influence, right? Because I really do think that politicians, they really do pay attention to what the voters want and try to find a way to give the voters as much as possible at the lowest possible cost. 
So they basically, they're acting the way an entrepreneur tries, the same way that Apple tries to build an iPhone. It's like, well, people wish it had infinite power and were free, but well, we can put in these features and still make money and sell it at a thousand bucks, right? So they're going up their marginal cost curve and also looking down the consumer's marginal benefit curve. Politicians are doing this all the time, right? A, that's happening all the time. B, when I think about corporations, when I think about the peer effects inside the corporation, you know, just think the president of a, of a large corporation, he's seeing his coworkers all the time. He's seeing his employees on a regular basis, right? And the shareholders, the people who own the company are some people who show up to a meeting once a year, right? So how on earth do the shareholders get the president to fire the weak workers when he knows the personal stories of many of these workers? Oh, this person had a, a relative with some brain damage. This person has some little kids. How can I lay off these people possibly? And the shareholders are like, I want you to maximize NPV. And we know how it works, right? The way it works is that you give the president and the CEO these stock incentive packages or different kinds of financial incentives to go and make those hard decisions. So having some kind of method built into the system so that the people who are out of the room can have an influence over the people who are in the room, that's the only thing that seems to work for human beings, right? And it seems to work well enough. A, you can say it works well enough that privately held corporations do not dominate the United States, right? If the shareholder asymmetric, you know, principal agent problem between the shareholder and the president of the corporation was so big, then privately held corporations would dominate. So we know the problem isn't that big. And similarly, I think here in politics, we can say that these uh, having the voters check in on the politicians every six years works pretty well. And the way we can tell it works pretty well is because they keep getting reelected. If the voters really hated this, they'd like be throwing the bums out every uh, couple of years. Right. But I mean, it's interesting how the companies that have the best performance are the ones that are incorporated in jurisdictions that respect the business judgment rule. And that's sort of like giving the managers a bit of the benefit of the doubt, right? So here in Berkeley, we have my tax bill every year. It looks like a layer cake, right? Because every year there's another referendum to give a certain percentage to the library and then to the roads and then to whatever. And so the vast majority of my taxes are spoken for by these decisions that were made decades ago. You know, I think I gave like $3,000 in taxes to the libraries. And last time I checked, there's nobody... <laughs> in the libraries, right? But I think the voters are, are reluctant to just let the legislators make these trade-offs. I mean, the fact that the referenda are so popular really is a sign that the voters are not very good at their jobs, right? Because they must have this experience of you of looking at this and saying like, so many of these things were done before my time. Why can't we just wipe the slate clean? I mean, and one way to wipe the slate clean would just be to let the insiders just come up with a new deal, sort of like the 1789 Constitutional Convention, right? 1787, excuse me. And they would probably just wipe the slate clean and start from scratch. For the 1986 tax bill, you cited one of these proposals about like a federal tax board. I love this idea. Yeah, Ellen Blinder's idea, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this would mean let's get a bunch of experts and have them decide. You'd want to create these bureaucratic experts and give them some protection from interference by the legislators. I read an interesting book about Sweden's response to COVID. And the main argument was that in Sweden, the public health decision makers were protected from political interference. And so you had public health professionals setting the policy rather than government officials, because presumably the public health officials know a lot more about public health than the legislators who are responding to the voters' demands. I will say that in the U.S., the same thing happened too, right? Like, I don't know enough about COVID in organization, regulatory organization to be an expert on this. But I can say that if that's happening in Sweden with independent regulators having a lot of power and choosing a lax policy, the opposite happened in the U.S., where the independent public health authorities were often doing lockdowns or mandatory masking or closing or reducing densities to a much more astonishing degree than probably the voter in the area wanted. So maybe we just got high variance because it was a very uncertain time. Yeah. So when there's disagreement among the public health of it, right? So you also talk about the glorious revolution, right? This is one of my favorite stories to talk about is kind of how, you know, these political institutions emerged and how, what's the origin story for the great leap that we all took in the 18th century or so forth. And you mentioned Darren Asimoglu and, and you mentioned, you know, North and, and Weingast. 
And I think a big part of that story really is that the bondholders kind of ran the show. <laughs> and so, I mean, another question might be, well, why not have equity holders? Wouldn't that work even better than having bondholders? That's a great question. I've thought about this, as you'd imagine. So the difficulty with defining equity holders is that it's hard to tell. It would be very hard for an equity holder, someone who held shares in the United States government, to know what they're going to get, right? Because if the voters continue to remain sovereign and their elected officials continue to remain sovereign, they can just vote to undo the deal at any point in time. And so what makes shareholder governance work well enough in corporations is that the shareholders in a very wide variety of situations are the only voters who matter for key decisions, right? And if there were shares of U.S. government, it's hard to imagine that the U.S. government creating shares while also giving those voters, the shareholders, overwhelming discretion over U.S. even economic policy, let alone all policy. So you get that separation of ownership and control, which is a perennial problem in corporate governance. So yeah, bonds are basically the best thing in town, I think, because countries have been able to stick on this focal point of, we'll make these payments over time. Right. Well, a lot of the early municipalities in the colonial U.S. were, yeah, I mean, you had the, the property owners were the only folks that were allowed to vote, right? So it was more or less like condo associations, except condo associations with police powers. And of course, almost everybody agrees now that universal suffrage is a good thing. But we still make all sorts of exceptions, right? We don't let children vote. We don't let felons vote. There's a large number of exceptions where both in the Europe, Europe and the U.S., people who are intellectually disabled to various degrees are kept from voting. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a huge amount of judicial discretion on that, right? And it's just something we all tolerate and talk about very little. So in other words, even though we talk about it, universal suffrage as a binary thing, you either have it or you don't have it, you know, everyone agrees that there's, there's a continuum. And I guess one of the provocative questions you ask is whether or not we ought to shift that kind of dividing line a little bit in the direction of maybe higher education or some other qualifications. The question is whether you can do it in a way that gets the great benefits of representative democracy with uh, some of the benefits of epistocracy, of having smarter folks have a little bit more influence. And the way I try to divide this up is I say, well, maybe the House of Representatives should have the full universal suffrage we have now, just keep it the way it is and turn the Senate into a sapienta. Instead of a house of the old, have it be a house of the wise, where in order to vote for those elections in the Senate, you got to have something like a college degree or some kind of advanced training, or maybe you have to be just old. So basically finding some way to give a little more weight to folks with more education, maybe more life experience in one house of government, and then have those two houses of government bicker with each other and argue it out. So the House can truly remain the House of the people and the Senate or the upper body of any country you're thinking of could reflect the views of those who are, you know, maybe a little above average in education or training or job skill. Well, I mean, this raises the question. Remember, William F. Buckley said he would rather have the first whatever hundred folks in the phone book running the show rather than the Harvard faculty. So is there an argument in favor? I mean, what is wrong with having the highly educated? Aren't the highly educated biased in their own direction? They are. I think the argument against having them in charge is that they ultimately do have blind spots and will not, they will have a weak incentive to enforce true equality across all folks, right? I mean, I tend to think in the modern US, that is probably not the first order question, probably not a first order issue, but by and large over the course of human history, one of the great benefits of having something like genuine democracy, where all voters have a vote, is that you're much less likely to get massacres. Governments are a lot less likely to kill their own citizens when their citizens can vote. So you're more likely to have, it's possible you're more likely to have peace if you have democracy, but it's definitely, you're definitely less likely to have massacres. And as um, Amartya Sen showed, countries that are democracies are almost guaranteed to not have a famine. So if mass democracy can almost guarantee the prevention of massacres and famines, that's worth cutting a lot of other deals. But you don't need to have perfect democracy to get that. And that's why I think that finding some way to give the legislative branch a little more weight toward the informed is, is worth thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I live here in Berkeley and- A place with a lot of smart people. A lot of smart people, a lot of educated people, but they're also very deeply removed from the concerns of 
you know, most of the people in the country. The thing is, Berkeley folks, I mean, I lived in Berkeley. Berkeley folks are a specific subset of very smart folks, right? So the average very smart person in America is not like a Berkeley person, right? So this is something that academics run into when they start thinking about like CEOs and corporate executives. And they're like, are they really smart? And the answer is, yeah, they're really smart. It's just not your kind of smart. Well, let's shift to the other book because this book really, The Culture Transplant, I mean, it digs into this huge literature that is called the deep roots literature. And I really did not know the full extent to which there was this massive literature, right? So there's a huge literature on kind of legal origins. There's a huge literature on institutional origins that try to tease out the differential performance of countries in the modern period. And, you know, this deep roots literature says that what matters is kind of where people came from more than, you know, where they are. At least it matters a lot, right? Yeah. And so could you talk a bit about, first of all, why this notion you may not have gotten the attention that you think it deserves. And is it intuitive? Is it counterintuitive? Yeah, that's a great question. Part of the reason the literature hasn't made it out into the public consciousness is because it's kind of new. The core papers that were published around 2010, and I think the lag take is a little bit longer than even 10 years for something to go from academic books to the public consciousness. So I, I knew it was time for a book to bring these, for popular book, to try to bring these ideas to light. So the core of the Deep Roots story, or at least my subset that I'm interested in, is noticing an important fact, which is that if you look at where, in the old world, the economic rank order across countries, the technological sophistication rank order across regions within the old world, really hasn't changed much since the year 1500. So Western Europe, in 1500, Western Europe and Eastern Asia were at the technological frontier. India and the Muslim world were just a little bit behind, and Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa was quite a bit behind. Not abysmally behind, but quite a bit behind. So basically, in the old world, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Things just haven't changed, right? In the new world, things have changed a lot since 1500. So if you're trying to predict what has changed a lot since 1500 in the new world, what you really need to look at is who moved where. So in the new world, for instance, the places that are most prosperous and at the technological frontier are disproportionately likely to have large numbers of Western European immigrants. The richest part of South America is the part that attracted the most European immigrants. So as my colleague Tyler Cowan pointed out in an interview he had with Rowan Asimoglu, he says, why is it that latitude is such a strong predictor of prosperity? And, you know, Asimoglu has his answer. You can go find that. What we should note is that that correlation has gotten stronger since 1500, right? Before Columbus came, the equatorial regions of the Americas were the richest, right? In modern times, the parts furthest from the equator are the richest. What is the reason for that change? One plausible reason is that's where the Europeans moved. We see a similar dynamic in Southeast Asia, where one very good predictor of how rich a country is across Southeast Asia is how many Chinese migrants moved there. So China was at the close to the technological frontier in 1500. Folks from China moved in large numbers to Singapore, to lesser extent to Malaysia, even less in Indonesia and much less in the Philippines. And that basically gives you a perfect rank order in predicting how rich those countries are today. We hear this term market dominant minorities to refer to the role of Chinese migrants across Southeast Asia. These Chinese migrants and their descendants haven't just enriched themselves. They haven't just made their own, built their own prosperity. They actually helped increase the productivity of those around them. They helped create better economic institutions in these countries, as far as we can tell. And they helped create a, broad, a more broadly shared prosperity than has been appreciated. Now, is this symmetrics? Because the argument's really about kind of cultural stickiness, right? And that the characteristics, the beliefs, the norms that people have... Get passed on for generations. They're passed on for generations, and they kind of resist this assimilation to some degree, or at least it takes a while for this assimilation to take place. I'm still waiting for my fellow Americans of European descent to assimilate to Native American norms, I think it's not going to happen. We should just call it out now. I mean, there are great things about Native American norms, right? But that assimilation is not going to happen. But is, is it a function of kind of how the immigration takes place? If it's a conquest versus a sort of, you know, opportunity-based immigration? I mean, I think in terms of... No. So when the Anglo-Saxons arrived, that was a very different impact than when, the, you know, the Normans arrived, right? The Chinese diaspora across Southeast Asia has not assimilated. 
They're still like carrying Chinese norms into these countries. They did not assimilate to the lower productivity norms of their regions, even though that was peaceful migration. Chinese migrants who moved across Southeast Asia did not come with weapons. They did not come with guns. They did not come with battleships. They came as peaceful traders, often working very low jobs in the economic rank order. Their peaceful assimilation did not mean that they assimilated to the lower productivity norms of their neighbors. They still kept their unique, historical, high productivity norms, something that anthropologists and local observers have noted for centuries in these regions, and it still holds up true today. Does this work by affecting the averages, or are there kind of cultural externalities? Do the productivity norms, say, of a Chinese immigrant trickle on down to, say, the, the melees that, you know, they are embedded with? Or is it just simply that the averages shift because of the change in the composition of the population? I tend to think that the most important channel through which immigration of people from places like China and Western Europe, the way that ends up shaping broadly shared prosperity is through the, our old cliche in economics, which is institutions. So for reasons that are somewhat poorly understood, Countries that wind up with a lot of migrants from Western Europe or Eastern Asia tend to wind up with better institutions, better rules of the game, better rule of law, lower corruption. And that by itself creates a better set of rules that help create broadly shared prosperity for everyone. There are probably other channels at work, but like a good economist, I like to stick as close to the literature as I can. And I know that my fellow economists will not give me any grief for saying institutions matter. And I do think that there's good evidence that the immigration, that high-skill immigration, um, as I, a point I make in hive mind, and immigration from countries and regions that were doing well in 1500, a point I make in culture transplant, both of those forms of immigration are likely to create improved institutional quality in the long run. Some of the channels are still poorly understood, but we've run this sort of natural experiment many times, often horrifyingly, through the waves of immigration over the last five centuries. So you said that the micro foundations, and this is something you're deeply interested in, you're saying are not well understood. Hopefully we'll tease them out. It's kind of like aspirin. I think you said, take a while to figure it out. I mean, I guess it, it kind of makes sense if you have a conquest, right? So that the English come over to the fairly sparsely populated Americas, and then they kind of graft on the institutions. But it's hard to understand how, the, say, the Chinese emigrating to, say, Indonesia would affect the institutions because many of them would sort of create their own institutions, right, where they would interact with each other. But I think you're saying that those sorts of things do tend to spill over. I mean, in democracies, there's an obvious reason, right, which is that, like, new voters create new policies. When women were given the right to vote across uh, Europe and the U.S., Quite a number of social scientists have documented the policy changes, the large, important policy changes that occurred within a few years, right? A lot of that involved basically a building, helping to expand the size of the modern welfare state. And that's great. And similarly, the migration of African-Americans from the South, where it was almost impossible to vote in the mid-20th century, to the North, where it was somewhat easier to vote, did lead to political changes. And that helped push forward the civil rights revolution, thank goodness. So we do have evidence that migration the migration of African-Americans within the U.S. helped improve institutional quality in the U.S. peacefully. There was no conquest. There were no guns. There were no pikes. There were no battleships. That peaceful migration helped change and improve institutional quality. There's also a, a new paper out pointing out that one of the reasons the New Deal passed, or at least one boost for the New Deal, was that uh, European migrants who came from countries that had welfare states were more likely to support the New Deal. Um, and again, all of these are peaceful migrations in the case of women, it was folks who were just living in America all the time and just were banned from voting. So we know that peaceful change can lead to institutional change. Right. So I think there are implications here for immigration. And if you believe that immigrants bring with them cultural values, that especially when immigration is at a fairly high level, you would expect then that would have some kind of impact on the institutions that they encounter. So, I mean... Again, this is poorly understood, but if we did have a good understanding, would this would be an argument in favor of some kind of, I guess, social engineering or an immigration policy that selected, not necessarily for people who have higher skills, but people who have, I guess, preferences that would align with the public goods that the country's interested in promoting? I've said for a long time that I believe in immediate citizenship for anyone who wants to move to America who believes in Uber surge pricing. <laughs> That's the litmus test. 
That's the litmus test. <laughs> right. But basically, I mean, the thing about culture transplant is it's not a book about the immediate effect, really, right? I mean, I joke with the Uber surge pricing story. What's really important is the multi-generational effect because the long run matters much more than the short run, right? So improving institutional quality, especially in the most highly innovative nations, is something that matters for the whole planet. Making sure that America has good enough institutions or even better institutions so that we can do greater research that helps the whole world, that's an important policy question. So yeah, it does put one in the mind of saying like, how can we encourage? How can we give like, I mean, these are early days in this line of work, right? But how can we at least encourage or at least improve the possibility that our new citizens are more likely to support you know, market-oriented policies, rule of law, gender and sexual preference tolerance? These kinds of things are important. I think these are questions that we should be thinking about. You end the book with some speculations around diversity. Is diversity desirable in and of itself? I mean, most people, I think, believe that tolerance is valuable in and of itself. But when it comes to diversity, I think most people offer up instrumental arguments, right? And I'm not sure if people offer up instrumental arguments simply because they believe that that's a rhetorical tool which will help them advance what they believe to be independently desirable or whether they really do believe this. And it seems like in the discussions, people conflate what you call firefly diversity, you know, versus what we might think of as cultural diversity. And you say cultural diversity, broadly defined, might actually be detrimental to performance in certain contexts. So do we, I mean, are we doing like a bait and switch when we say, Studies show diversity is helpful, therefore we should, and then fill in a completely different type of diversity. Is is this kind of equivocation that we use when we talk about democracy as well? You know, I can't speak to everyone's motives, but you're right. There is a curious parallel where we use democracy to mean like to import in a bunch of other ideas that are not democracy that we want. And when we talk about diversity, there's actually quite good evidence that skill diversity helps teams. If you have an engineer and you have a human resources professional and you have a user interface person, Those people are going to help build better software than if you have just a bunch of engineers. So skill diversity can help teams. Cultural diversity may lead to conflict, may lead to not much, but it definitely does not point to a big positive. Research that looks at ethnic diversity, cultural diversity per se in teams, and this is a lot of this is business literature, finds zero to nothing, right? The term that's used in the academic literature often is the double-edged sword of diversity. And that's the scholarly term. This isn't something that was invented by some like far-right blogs, right? This is what the academics are talking about in the journals. The double-edged sword of diversity. Swords don't sound peaceful to me. So where the evidence lies is that skill diversity is really good. Perhaps these negative effects of ethnic diversity can be managed, but I think the world of ethnic conflict, ethnically driven civil wars, ethnically driven battles and discrimination that we've seen in so many cultures over the centuries should make us skeptical of any claims that Yet another PowerPoint session, yet another human resources training session will end this problem. But are those differences driven by different communication methods and different norms and beliefs, or is it simply different identifications? You know, I'm on the green team and you're on the blue team. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You're absolutely right there. Right. It's like it's how much of this is just the fist. I mean, Europe went through a whole bunch of religious wars over interpretations of scripture, right? And they were the same folks, and they were just fighting over how to interpret stuff. And so this is a case where game theory itself can help us generate some conclusions here, which is that perhaps labels that correlate with visual markers lead to greater chance of conflict than forms of diversity that don't have physical markers, right? I don't know. But I do know that people lock on to gender norms very quickly, even when there's not much reason to believe in this, right? And it takes a lot of work to get people to overcome that. Ethnic diversity norms lead to sort of even soft forms of tribalization that seem to create conflict in the workforce. And it's partly because we humans, it is a behavioral economic story. Humans are cognitive economizers, and they're looking for whatever cognitive shortcut can get them to help them get through the day. And so, alas... Our fellow human beings use these visual markers and cultural markers way too often. Again, Europe found another cultural marker in the 1500s and 1600s with all the religious wars over whether you were a Protestant or a Catholic, right? So cultural conflict isn't something we should probably be signing up for more of unless we see strong positive benefits. And ethnic diversity seems to be a case where 
we aren't seeing the strong positive benefits as a flat rule. But I do think that in the case of high-skilled immigration, the benefits of, say, high-skilled immigration are so large that that seems to overwhelm these sort of zero to slightly negative effects we see of cultural diversity and conflict. Right. And so if we want to have our cake and eat it too, which I know that you say the economic slogan is compared to what, but the slogan that my students are always gravitating towards is, how do I have both, right? So if we really took these ethnic differences seriously and we didn't just you know wish them away, what do you suppose would be some productive techniques for eliminating some of the complications that come from it? I mean, is it simply aggressive assimilation or is it more like creating newer forms of identification that transcend these differences? Both of those sound great to me. I think that nothing's going to beat intermarriage. So that basically having the most closest intimate bonds be shared across these groups is in many ways the best bet we can have for the future. I mean, that said, I can't be utopian about this. I mean, many I've been reading lately about the Yugoslav wars and there were many horrifying examples of intermarried families that were nevertheless victims in the civil war, right? But I think finding ways to blur the boundaries here, finding ways to melting pot it rather than embracing separate multiculturalism. You know, these are just at the margin, right? This is not all or nothing. But at the margin, finding ways to blur the boundaries more through intermarriage and through breaking down these bonds, that's probably the best shot we have. We know this conflict is there. We, and again, it's because people are, are cognitive economizers. We are lazy statisticians. And we want to find some way to figure out who's in what group. And alas, my fellow human beings seem to use ethnic distinctions way too often as a way to come to quick judgments. Well, Garrett, thanks so much for joining me. Both these books are, I mean, what I loved about both the books is that you survey the literature in both areas in a very comprehensive and economical way. Right? So I was circling a gazillion references and footnotes that I realized I had to go check out. I always write my books so that the experts in the field will look at it and say, yeah, he did a fair job. Yeah. So, and sure enough, the first academic review of Culture Transplant came out and said just that. So I was very happy with that. And I don't think you're advocating any wholesale change, just a little nudge, maybe in one direction. Yeah, I'm like a 10% guy, right? I'm a marginalist. That's who I am at heart. Okay. Well, I think uh, everyone should check out both books. Uh, and of course, Hive Mind, the third book. Talk again soon. Thanks very much, Greg. Had a great time. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.